For more than two years, we've been experiencing a global health crisis unlike any other, which disrupted all aspects of our daily lives. The pandemic had a domino effect and added fuel to the fire of ongoing crises, which notably included the opioid crisis. In the first year of the pandemic, we witnessed a 96% increase in opioid-related deaths. People were more stressed out, felt more isolated and anxious, and didn't have access to the support systems they needed. And it doesn't help that the drugs they had access to have become increasingly more toxic in recent years. In June of 2022, news broke that British Columbia, one of the most impacted provinces, would be temporarily decriminalizing the simple possession of small amounts of certain drugs in an attempt to curb the ongoing public health emergency. This news drew both praise and backlash, with many not understanding what this meant. After all, how could it possibly help the situation to legalize drugs? Today, let's take a step back from the news and talk to someone who might be able to help us make sense of this in another discussion on the sidelines. Joining us on the sidelines today to talk about drug decriminalization is Dr. Susan Boyd, Distinguished Professor Emerita at the University of British Columbia, a community activist in harm reduction, and author of several articles and books on drug issues and policy. Thanks for joining us, Susan. Well, thank you for inviting me to um, the program on the sidelines. To get started, can you give us some context as to what exactly is happening in Canada in terms of the opioid crisis? Actually, we started to see a rise in uh, preventable drug poisoning or overdose deaths since 2011. So it's over 10 years um, that we've been seeing a rise in preventable illegal drug overdose deaths. I want to say that I usually don't refer to it as an opioid crisis because when we look at the uh, deaths, these preventable deaths, we can see that it's due to drug poisoning. The drug fentanyl, illegal fentanyl, as in the case in Canada, has been included in many other opioids, methamphetamine and cocaine, drugs sold on the legal market. And so when people purchase a drug on the legal market, it's not regulated. So you don't know for sure the potency or the quality of that drug. And this is what is in causing the uh, overdose deaths. But also we could see that they're rooted in our very punitive system of drug control in Canada as well, that these drugs are illegal and unregulated. Before we dive deeper into the system itself, how exactly has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted these trends? Yeah, there's been a terrible impact. I mean, when we look at even the federal statistics on overdose uh, illegal drug deaths, we can see that in the last six years that there's about 30,000 preventable overdose deaths. But we saw a huge and steep increase as COVID hit. And one of the reasons for that is many of the services, you know, not shut down completely, but people weren't allowed to visit those services, you know, come in groups and receive the supports that they normally did. And we also had policies, you know, to stop the spread of COVID infection related to how many people could also visit you in your home. And so for many people, especially people who are socially and legally marginalized and are poor, they're living in one room hotels, you know, uh, some social housing that's been set up where they can't have multiple visitors, you know, or people living with them. 
And so we know that most illegal drug overdoses occur when a person is alone and there's not someone there to help them when they ingest or smoke or inject their drug. So COVID-19 and its associated policies were clearly an exacerbating factor. But earlier on, you mentioned the punitive system that we have in place. What exactly is this referring to? Well, under our Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is a federal legislation that regulates some drugs. So in that act, it distinguishes between medical use of drugs and non-medical use of drugs. So you could be prescribed an opioid by your doctor, you know, through a prescription. You'd go to the drugstore and you'd have that prescription filled. You would be assured that the drug that you receive has been approved by Health Canada and that the potency and the quality of that drug is safe. But for non-medical use of opioids, that's consisting of buying a drug on the legal market. And drugs that are produced or sold on the legal market do not have any quality control. And it may be the same drug that you had prescribed by your doctor. So let's say oxycodone. And that's a safe drug for you to take, possibly for pain control. But when you buy that same drug on the illegal market, it's illegal to do so. And so the penalties are very harsh in relation to our federal drug laws. Possession, the penalty could be up to seven years imprisonment for trafficking, a non-medical illegal drug. It could be up to life. Now, most people don't receive that kind of sentencing, but even possession for personal use can snowball into a harsher sentence down the road. And so this federal framework applies to all the provinces and territories in Canada and is quite punitive and discriminatory against people who are using drugs that are deemed illegal. You brought up the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is the piece of legislation that criminalizes drug use and by association those who use these drugs. How is decriminalization accomplished despite the current legal framework in Canada? Yeah, so we have this legal framework, but there is an exemption to the law, and that's called a 56-1 exemption. And so scientists and researchers applied for 56-1 exemptions from the criminal law in order to set up like a safer injection site or an overdose prevention site. It means that people can come into that specific space with drugs that might have been purchased on the illegal market, but not fear arrest in that physical space. So what occurred was that due to all the extreme rise, especially during COVID, of overdose deaths, the province of BC applied to Health Canada for an exemption, a 56-1 exemption from the Criminal Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. The Federal Minister of Health and Addictions granted them a three-year exemption for personal possession of drugs for the amount of 2.5 or less a person will not be arrested and criminalized for possessing that small amount of the drug. And this is will be effective January 31st, 2023, for three years. If we really wanted to do something serious about the preventable deaths, we could consider rolling that out across Canada. You mentioned interventions such as safer injection sites and overdose prevention sites, which have also received 56-1 exemptions from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. What would you say it is that all of these interventions have in common? I think what they have in common is that they're set up to save lives, to reduce harm. That's their primary focus and to meet people where they're at. So where you might have a drug treatment service, it might be what would be considered an abstinent-based 
service. And so in order for people to receive services from your program, they have to remain abstinent or at least reach that goal of abstinence at some point. With harm reduction, it's not a rejection of abstinence, but it's seeing drug use on a larger continuum. And so that someone who's using every day or continuously, they can still receive services. They can still receive education about drugs, education about housing, education about different types of treatments. So really meeting the person where they're at. You know, most of our services in Canada remain absence-based. That's been the model that we adopted in the late 1800s, and we continue with that model as the primary model. But we do have amazing and innovative harm reduction programs across Canada that try to mitigate the harm of our punitive drug laws. But you have to keep in mind that these programs are not funded in the same way that a lot of abstinent-based treatment services are. And a lot of people are risking their safety by volunteering there or working there as well, especially with the opening of overdose prevention sites. And in British Columbia, we've seen that there's been not one overdose death at a safer injection site or an overdose prevention site. So they really do save lives. You know, wherever your moral compass is in relation to people using criminalized drugs, you really can't argue that they don't save lives. We can see really that if you have two different environments, one where you provide the legal safe drug to a person and one where you don't, we can see the outcome quite clearly. You know, lives that are damaged, loss of life, harms to individuals, families, and communities. So I think Canadians have to ask themselves, you know, which do they prefer? You know, these deaths and tearing apart of families is unnecessary. So what seems to be becoming clearer now is that harm reduction is in some ways a remedy to the punitive system that has persisted for so long. But can you expand more on the role that harm reduction plays relative to our abstinence-centric and punitive system? You know, I guess what I would say first is that harm reduction exists because of our Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, you know, because it's very punitive. But it can't mitigate all the harm of drug prohibition. That's sort of like having uh, one person, you know, holding their finger in a dam. Eventually, the dam is going to break. Those services are doing their best. And they're most often agitating for changes in the law to see less punitive system set in place. And, you know, I do want to say that the framework that we adopted, the roots of it were in the Indian Act from 1876. There was a provision in the Indian Act that prohibited non-medical use of alcohol and opiates for people who were labeled as status Indians in Canada. It was part of the colonial project. But interesting enough, at that time, they didn't criminalize non-medical opiate use for white settlers. So these have been race-based laws. But we can see from our criminal stats about who is arrested or who's sent to prison that the race-based sort of premise of drug prohibition still exists. Indigenous and Black people are much more likely to be convicted of a drug offense and other criminal offenses in Canada, but they are not more criminal and they're not using more illegal drugs than white citizens or residents. But this idea of the white, Christian, sober citizen exists in Canada today. And we have 
difficulty sometimes understanding that abstinence or being sober may not be the best policy for some people. You know, I don't know where we got this idea that punishment changes anybody's behavior. It rarely does, especially in relation to drug use. But as I said earlier, that's a very colonial, white supremacist sort of punitive model that we applied in the Indian Act and later in 1908 with the regulation of opiates for people who are non-Indigenous. Not all doctors understand the concept of harm reduction or the harms that stem from our laws and are really wedded to an abstinence-based type of model. But we should be clear, harm reduction has never been a rejection of abstinence. If a person wants to strive towards abstinence or absence of a specific drug, They'll get all the support they need through harm reduction services. It just sees drug use along a wider continuum and hopes to not pathologize or criminalize people who do use. And for those periods when they might use, because not everybody uses continuously, but the support would be to keep them safe if that happens so that they have lots of alternative routes instead of death or criminalization. Clearly, this system is flawed. And now I'm left wondering whether decriminalization is enough. Is there any political will to amend or reform the law? You know, to make clear, decriminalization is just that you would have um, no criminal sanctions related to personal possession of a drug. And about 30 nations have implemented some type of decriminalization than some U.S. states as well. Legalization is quite different because with decriminalization, the illegal drug market still exists. Poison drugs or drugs that are of unknown quality and potency still exist. Drug-related harms would still exist as well as drug-related violence. But legalization would be similar to what we've done with cannabis or alcohol or tobacco, where we have regulation of those drugs. And it could be quite different for different drugs because we're talking about in BC, decrim for these three years will apply to opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and DMA, which is better known as ecstasy. With legalization, you're actually then reducing the illegal drug market. That's the point of it, to and that you would have access to safe drugs. So there wouldn't be questions about potency or the quality of the drug, it could be assured and monitored by the Health Canada. So to have decrim, yes, that will have a positive effect. Some people will not be arrested and charged and convicted of a drug offense. They won't have to move through the criminal justice system. That would be fantastic. But it doesn't alleviate all of these other concerns about the illegal drug market or access to a safe supply. Till we have that, there'll still be deaths and harm related to legal drug use in Canada. Hopefully we'll see a decrease, but without the other components, I think it would be quite different. And also we have concerns in relation to how will this be monitored by law enforcement? You know, how will they know what is 2.5 grams of a drug? Because we know as well, especially for marginalized people, that encounters with criminal justice officials, you know, police and RCMP have often been conflictual and uh, traumatic as well. So with legal regulation, we wouldn't have these similar encounters with law enforcement for individuals. And we have to keep in mind too with the overdose crisis that you know, we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of preventable deaths, deaths of children, loved ones, sons, daughters, wives, husbands, our friends, people that we work with. So much harm has been created by our policies. 
and we know what to do. And so I would like us to get brave enough to push forward and move, you know, decrim is a nice first step. But let's not stay there long because there's much more that we need to do along with decrim, but also to move towards, you know, regulation completely. So what other support infrastructure needs to be addressed in order to move forward on this path towards regulation? There's quite a few organizations, Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, HIV Legal Network, Pivot, Legal Society in BC, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Many groups came together and have been talking about, you know, how would you move towards legal regulation or decrim? You know, this idea that you have to bring our resources, our tax base to creating housing education, less discriminatory health services and treatment, better harm reduction services throughout Canada, not just in isolated spaces, especially rural areas that often don't have any harm reduction services or drug substitution programs. And so looking at, you know, what would an ethical drug regulation system look like? Because our punitive drug policy is so rooted in systemic race and class and gender injustice that we really need to provide resources for the building up of a better healthcare system, better harm reduction and drug treatment services. Trying to deal with these issues prior to criminalization, Canada was very slow to even create any kind of drug treatment after they criminalized drugs. It wasn't until the 1960s that we really saw the emergence of drug treatment in Canada. We criminalized it and everybody was a criminal after that, but we had to wait decades for drug treatment to be funded federally. And even so, that funding went towards just abstinence-based treatment. If our listeners want to know more about drug decriminalization, where should they go? I would suggest that, you know, people take a look at the website for Canadian Drug Policy Coalition or um, HIV Legal Network or uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy if they want to learn more about reform, you know, uh, groups coming together demanding change to our drug laws, but also demanding that we use our tax base towards life-saving services, ones that support families instead of tearing them apart. Thank you so much, Susan. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about the opioid crisis or any of the other topics we've talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Miriam Ben Musa, Sam Marchetti, and Connor Nelson, and edited by Jay Jarantonis.